Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. In the deepest places of our hearts. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we are in verse 20, or excuse me, chapter 23, and we left off in verse 26 of the chapter. So go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26, where we left off. Now you may remember, hopefully you do, uh, as we're moving through the book of Proverbs, we've come to a separate section of the book. It's, a, it's about a two-chapter section, uh, the ending portion of chapter 22, uh, running through all of chapter 23 to about halfway through chapter 24. And it's this little section, it's a collective of 30 sayings, a little different from what we've been looking at because these are two, three, four verse sayings that are linked together on a variety of topics, 30 of them. These are directed much like the beginning Proverbs of the book were directed to Solomon's son. You'll, he, you'll see Solomon's son, uh, like that word, son, these are for you, mentioned a number of times in this particular section. Um, but we can kind of listen in because the Lord's speaking these things to our hearts as well. And so beginning at verse 26, he says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Now, when Solomon began this section, go back to chapter 22, verse 17 there, and you'll look in verse 17, what you'll notice, Solomon said this to begin this new section. He said, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. And so he exhorts his son again. And at that time, I reminded you, it's sort of like he realizes, look, I've been talking a lot. You're, You're probably, your eyes have glazed over. It's going over your head. And so he said, no, no, listen to me. I want to tell you something, and it's really important. I want you to hear this. So he says to him, incline your ears in your ear, hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge. Now, if you look at our verse for today, verse 26, the first verse for today at least, you'll see there that he says, give me your heart. So he says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. There is an aspect to what he is saying. There's a measure of pleading with his son. He's not embarrassed, essentially, to plead with his son. Hear me. If you take the New Testament equivalent to this, this is something like where Paul would say something like, look, I earnestly beseech you. I'm not embarrassed to beg you right now. He says to his son here in Proverbs, give me your heart. He pleads with his son. He begs his son to give him his heart. And that idea there means to set your heart upon these things. It's to listen very, very carefully to these things and to consider, okay, how does this apply to me? Not just to hear it, not just allow it kind of, that's very interesting. No, no, take it and apply it to your life. Consider these things. Set your heart upon these things. All of that is encompassed encapsulated there in the idea of give me your heart. Now notice though, he adds, I'm talking very fast, I'm excited. He, ta- he adds there, he says, let your eyes observe my ways. I think that's very significant because Solomon is not just saying, listen to what I say, but he's saying, look at what I do. And again, I shared that a little bit a while ago in one of our previous studies there, how important it is that our lives match up with our words particularly as we're trying to teach another person. And so Solomon is saying, observe, in so many words, observe the way I order my life. He's telling his son to do that. He's giving him permission. Observe the way I order my life. Take notice of how I respond to frustrating circumstances as I go about my day in and my day out. He's saying, pay attention to what I do with my free time to his son. He's saying, watch the way I prioritize things in my life. 
and what those things actually are. He's asking his son to observe how he has given his heart to the way of wisdom and how he has applied all of these things that he's been telling his son to his very own life. He's calling his son to observe his life. And again, making it clear that he is doing these things, that he's advising his son to do so as well. Again, as I said, it is so crucial that what we teach is aligned with what we model. Because hypocrisy in these things is so debilitating to another person's walk. So if a kid is observing hypocrisy, a kid walks away just believe that's not true. You can say anything you want. I'm looking, not just hearing. Now, I think it's very interesting to know where Solomon goes next in verse 27. Because I think a lot of Christians, particularly those that have a past of some sorts, and we all do, we're all sinners and so on. But some of us came to Christ a little bit later in life. If you're five, you know, and you come to know Jesus, probably haven't done that many bad things in your life that people are like, right, let me tell you my story. You know, the sandbox, buddy, look out. I was a killer in there, whatever. But if you're older and you come to the Lord, you may have a past. You may have some things you're a little ashamed of, a little bit embarrassed about. Now, looking back at those, you may have some things that people look at your life, yeah, well, I know the real you. Yeah, but I'm a new man. And what happens sometimes for believers, as now they become parents or whatever, they're a little hesitant to speak into the life of their son or their daughter because they know, now they know that they have a past. But Solomon doesn't. And that's what I want to draw your attention to. If you look at verse 27, he says, For a prostitute is a deep pit, and an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. So Solomon just said, observe the life I live. Now, if you know much about Solomon, you know that he has a past with prostitutes and adulteresses, that he had given himself over to those things in his life. And again, as I said, some would say then, or think then, you know, I'm disqualified to speak on this particular topic. Solomon doesn't think that. And just because he has a past in those particular areas, in some senses, he is more qualified to speak on those particular areas because he knows the pain that it has caused him. And he knows the deep pit that it, it put him in. And so Solomon then, after telling his son to observe his ways, he warns about the very same areas that tripped him up. And so he goes into this. I think it's connected to verse 26. Here's what he says to him. He says, learn from the mistakes that I have made. And again, many of us in this room have made many mistakes. And we might walk away thinking, well, I'm disqualified of speaking truth into that particular area of my child's life. Solomon said, no, don't make uh, that mistake again, that second mistake. Yes, he made mistakes early in his life. He ignored clear instructions that others gave him. He rebelled and he went his own way into sin and he experienced the consequences of those decisions that he now speaks and exhorts his son about as well. And his, the takeaway this is what he's saying don't make the same mistakes I've made. Keep yourselves from the pro yourself from the prostitute or from the adulterous woman. Understand, he says to his son, that even though I've been forgiven of the Lord, I still deal with the consequences and the pain and the difficulties that come from those decisions. To go back to that word I used in the beginning, he says, son, I beg you, keep yourself from the things that I gave myself to and guard yourself from those things. Such a loving statement of a dad speaking into his son's life. And each of us, we would be wise 
to learn those lessons from our dads, from our moms, from those that have gone before us, older brothers and sisters in the faith. If we're young people here, you don't need to make the same mistakes that your parents made or that others that have come before you made. The, the stove is hot, trust me. You don't have to touch the stove to see if it's hot for yourself. And parents, moms, dads, older people in the faith, youth mentors, and so on, you can share your story. Some people glory in their past. Don't do that. But you can share your story of how Jesus entered in and how he changed you and how he gave you insight into the way that is good and righteous and worth following after. And I encourage you uh, to do so, exhort you to do so as Solomon does. Now, the rest of chapter 23, it's given as a warning against the perils of drunkenness and an exhortation for his son to exercise wisdom by steering clear of those things. And so I'll read it. It's about six verses. Solomon says this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And then he answers this question, Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Pretty, uh long section. It's about the third time Solomon has addressed alcohol. This may be one of the longest uh, of his addresses on the particular topic here. And, and certainly, as you read it, the takeaway in these five or six verses is that despite what the commercial advertising says about drink, it's not all as wonderful as it's, uh, it's painted to be, so to speak, on the pictures that are there. And we know that excessive consumption of alcohol so often brings with it a whole host of problems. And Solomon addresses those. Again, he says, who has woe? I like that word. I don't really know what it means. But who has woe, he says? Who has sorrow, strife, complaining, wounds without cause, redness of eyes? Who has all these things? He answers it. Those who tarry long over wine. So looking at them, who has woe? Well, it's the drunkard who after a night or a weekend of drinking find themselves having now to clean up their messes, sometimes even legal messes, on Monday morning. Who has sorrow? Well, it's the drunkard who is consumed with sorrow for that which they did while under the influence. Who has strife? It's the drunkard who finds himself in a fistfight based on something they said or in response to things that were said in that condition. Who has complaining? Who has inexplicable wounds? Well, it's the drunkard who wakes up on Saturday morning or Sunday morning complaining about their pounding headache? Or where did this black eye come from? Who has redness of eyes? It's the drunkard that searches for their dark sunglasses or their bottle of Visine before they head out into public uh, the next morning. That's who has all these troubles. And Solomon, his exhortation, 31, he says, Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, and goes down smoothly. Then he adds, look in verse 32, he adds, In the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. 
seen the movies or maybe you've experienced it. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea and just sort of is shaking and rocking, like the one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you'll say, but I was not heard. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When I shall awake, I must have another drink. Now, I think there's a very important pattern here that I want to draw your attention to that Solomon presents to us. And certainly I think it's helpful as we approach the consumption of alcohol and things like that. But I think it's really helpful for any matter that we may find ourselves facing. And the pattern that Solomon gives us is this, is that for any that would keep themselves from sin and its consequences, the way of wisdom is to keep yourself from the very beginning. So no matter what the issue is, alcohol, whatever it may be, for any that would keep themselves from sin and its consequences, the place to begin keeping yourself is at the very beginning. And so I'll, draw, I'll make my point here. Look at verse 22. Notice where the serpent bites and the adder sting takes place. And notice where the strange sights and perverse utterances, notice where they all start. Notice where the person's world started rocking. Remember it says there, as if they were in the midst of the sea. And notice where they began to experience those unexplained beatings. Where did this black eye come from? Notice where all of those things uh, began there. It says in verse 31, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. And then the next verse, verse 22, or 32, I think that should say, in the end, it bites like a serpent. So in the beginning, when he's looking at the cup and the red wine or whatever that is in there that is sparkling in the cup, that's the place to consider the end. Wisdom considers the end of the matter at the beginning of the matter. It's, the, it's at the end that you really want to consider. Is this really the end that I want for myself? Is the end of the matter really where I want to find myself? And so, before you click send on that email, consider, is this really what I want to communicate to this particular person? Before you take that step to actually siphon off some of those funds into your own personal account, play it out. What's the end of the matter? Is that really where you want to find yourself in a year or two years from now? Before you start that little flirtatious relationship, with that person that isn't your husband or your wife. Play out that to the end. Is that really where you want to find yourself in a couple of years or in three years or what have you? There's an old saying that says this, take heed of the bait for fear of the hook. Take heed of the bait for fear of the hook. And I think perhaps the most important step of wisdom that you, you and I can take from this morning's study is that we would more frequently stop and consider the end of the decisions that we are about to make. And again, by that, what we mean is to allow those decisions to play out to their end and then measure, is that really the end I want for myself? Is that really the end I want for my family? Is that really the end I want for my career or the business that I run or what have you? And I think a lot of people would keep themselves from going down a lot of paths if they would play out the matter. And so consider the end at the beginning so that you might guard yourself and walk in the way of wisdom. Amen? And it applies, I think, to every area of our lives. Verse 24, excuse me, chapter 24, it says, Be not envious of all evil men, excuse me, be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, 
for their hearts devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. Now, multiple times Solomon has spoken about envying sinners. Here he calls them evil men. But notice here he adds, and do not desire to be with them. Now, some might hear that and they might object to that and, they, and say something like, well, Jesus spent time with sinners. And certainly that is true. Jesus did spend time with sinners. But I think the reality is the more accurate statement is that sinners spent time with Jesus as opposed to Jesus spending time with them. And what I mean by that is that when sinners came to spend time with Jesus, they were being influenced by him. He wasn't being influenced by them. And Solomon's word to his son is to avoid palling around and hanging around with sinners, lest you become like those sinners. Now, I strongly encourage us, each of us, to look for ways to be able to interact with the lost. That seems contradictory. I believe it's very important. Look for ways to interact with the lost. I'm not an advocate of separatism. I don't think we should all go live on some Christian commune somewhere, though that would probably be pretty cool for a week or two. Uh, Maybe we should do it for vacation, give it a shot, see how we like each other afterwards. Um, But I think we should look for ways to be able to interact with the lost because if we want to reach the lost, then we need to go to the lost. We can put signs up and ask them to come here. Most of them aren't going to. And so, would you, you know, come, well, you are, there you go, all right, but if you were lost, would you come? Uh, Probably not, and so we want to go to them. But that being said, if gathering together with unbelievers, if in doing so, you find yourself becoming more like them, and that, and by that, what I mean is their sinful ways, than they becoming like you, well, then wisdom would exhort you to pull back from that relationship. So, If the sinful atmosphere of those hangout times is changing you for the worse, that's when you need to get yourself out of that particular situation. I remember in college when I was just, so I I became a believer, I think many of you know this, I didn't have one of those like, today was the day kind of thing. It was just sort of this, over this period of time, and then I was like, I think I'm a believer. You know, I, I don't know when it happened, whatever it may be. I did pray the prayer because uh, I heard it on the radio at the end of the little program, the guy said, if you want to follow Jesus, you pray this prayer. And I said, all right, well, I better pray it just to make sure. You know, so I did um, up in my bedroom with the radio on in the distant bathroom. I prayed that little prayer. But I think I had prayed that prayer in my heart a long time before that. Anyway, the point of what I was saying. Oh, and so for, uh, for about eight, nine months or whatever, not much of my life necessarily changed. All right, so yeah, this thing went on in my heart and in my head or whatever. But when I, when I got to college, I began to really walk with the Lord. And the Lord made it very clear that there were some old friends that I had been pounding around with, hanging around with, who we had done all sorts of other things prior to my coming to know the Lord, that those relationships weren't helping me grow. And so the Lord said, you need to pull out of those relationships. And that was about freshman year of college. But then around junior year of college, as I had become solidified in my faith, the Lord said, you need to reach out to those guys again. And we invite them to like a ball game and different things like that and so on, so that I would have the opportunity perhaps to speak into their lives. But if it's having a negative effect on you and dragging you down, the way of wisdom then is then break off the relationship. Do what you need to do to guard yourself. That's Solomon's general point there in verses 1 and 2. Now verse 3 goes on. He says, by wisdom a house is built. By understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Now, Solomon, when he talks about the house there, he talks about the rooms being filled with riches. Ultimately, he's referring to a person's life. 
he's using the metaphor of a house that is being built. I would say this, even in the literal sense, though, of the words houses and riches, as we've been seeing in our study of the book of Proverbs, when a person gives themselves to diligence and prudence and industriousness, when they live within their means, when they wait and save up for those items that they want or whatever, all of those are wise decisions which lead to success financially in so many ways. But again, I don't really think that's what Solomon is getting at here. I think he's talking about building a life building a life of wisdom, and truly a person or family that builds their life of wisdom is building a well-built life, a life that is marked, if you will, by riches and abundance and the other examples that he gives there. And so that's what we seek to do. Believe the Lord, trust the Lord, and walk in his ways. And the Lord says, look, I know how to do it. Trust me. And so we seek to do that. Verse 5 and 6, it says, a wise man is full of strength, And a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. It's been said a man of brains is mightier than a man of brawn. And of course we know there's a place for physical strength and might, but a a far more value is wisdom and knowledge and godliness. And it is those things that will ultimately, anyone desiring to be victorious, it's those things that we should be seeking after. Verse 7 says, Wisdom is too high for a fool. In the gate, he does not open his mouth. It seems to me, this is a saying much like the guy who said, well, I can't go out into the street. There's a lion out there. I love that verse. I keep quoting it. It seems to me it's the same type of thing, that there's always an excuse. And the idea then would be the fool is saying, well, I can't have wisdom. It's too high. It's too far to reach up there. I can't obtain wisdom. Because wisdom then is, quote unquote, too high for the fool, the fool then takes no steps to obtain wisdom. And therefore, like that sluggard who is never able to find work, even so the fool never seems to be able then to obtain wisdom. It's ever beyond his or her grasp. It can be theirs if they'll apply themselves to it. But as we see, they will not apply themselves to it. Now, he goes on, and then he talks about finding themselves in the gate. Remember, the gate is the the place of, if you will, the county courthouse. That's the place where the trial is going to take place, or judgment is going to be meted out. And so here's this fool that just couldn't bring themselves to acquire wisdom, to seek after wisdom. So when they find themselves in the gate, notice they'll have nothing to say for themselves. The idea is when the judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? Why are you a fool? That there'll be nothing to say. Well, it was too high. I don't want to hear it. Everybody else reached it. Well, I I was cold. Uh, Everybody else put a jacket on. You know what I mean? And so eventually all the excuses will stop and there'll be nothing that they can say for themselves. And they'll be standing there with no defense. They'll be speechless. He does not open his mouth. And that silence then will testify against them that they are without excuse because wisdom is available. And here's the cool thing about being a believer. Not only is wisdom available to us, the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us as well. So it's one thing to know all these things and have no strength to be able to carry them out. It's another thing to know these things and to go to God and say, would you strengthen me to walk in these ways? And that's what he does. 
So any one of us here can walk in every way of wisdom that the Scripture provides for us, if we desire to. Wisdom is available, and the power to carry out that wisdom is available to us as well. So seek wisdom is Solomon's exhortation. Pursue wisdom. Earlier yesterday, I think, or last week, he said this, buy it no matter what it costs, and don't sell it no matter what anybody offers you for it. It's that important, and it's available to each one of us. Praise the Lord. That is so cool. You're not excited. I understand. This is really good stuff. All right, moving on. Verse 8, it says, Whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to mankind. So Solomon now will draw us to a number of different matters in which a person could get themselves involved in, or matters they can get themselves involved in folly. And he refers to those things as sin. Now what I find interesting about this here is this, that really all three of them, definitely the first two, and the third one can be as well, but the first two of these three things that he draws our attention to are things that take place in our hearts and in our minds, not necessarily in our actions. So notice he points out the one who plans to do evil. He draws our attention to the one who devises folly. And then the third example is of the scoffer. And we know that often the, the idea of being a scoffer, it's an issue of the heart and mind. It's a pride issue that works itself out in the words we say or the way that we respond and so on. And so really all three of those are actions or things that take place in our heart and in our mind, not necessarily carried out in our lives with our hands, if you will. And so then the takeaway is this. When we allow our minds to entertain wickedness, it's not uncommon for our lives then to follow suit. But even if they don't, what Solomon instructs us is to not allow our hearts and our minds to go there. And so he says that planning to do evil or devising folly, notice he calls it sin. Well, it was just up in my head. I didn't carry it out. He still calls it sin, which means it shouldn't be up there. You remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, whoever lustfully looks upon a woman has committed adultery with that woman already in his heart. Well, I didn't carry it out but you let your mind and your heart go there. And Jesus says, don't. Solomon here says, don't. We learn in the New Testament that every intent of man's heart will be exposed. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Every intent of man and woman's heart will be exposed. As it says in 1 Corinthians, the Lord will bring the light, the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose even the purposes of the heart. Even the thoughts of a wicked person will render a person guilty in the day of judgment. For the thoughts as well as the deeds will be judged. Everything will be laid bare. And this is so, why it is so important for us to take every thought captive to Christ, as Paul says in the New Testament. Because we think, as long as I don't carry it out, I'm okay. No, even allowing your heart and your mind to go there is destructive. And so we bring every thought captive to the Lord. Lord, just forgive me for that. Lord, would you help me to think good things about that particular person and not how I want to see him die with a shark bite this summer? Yeah. Lord, would you just cleanse my heart and my mind? Guard your heart and mind. Bring it to the Lord. Because as, if every thought and intention of the wicked person will be judged and laid bare, well then certainly as believers, we should give care to these matters, shouldn't we? 
and say, Lord, cleanse me from the inside out. Again, so much of what's going on in the inside manifests itself on the outside. Solomon says, guard those areas. Verse 10 says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. We see so often on the news, we saw once again with the shooting in Texas, so often out of nowhere, these events occur. And what I mean is nobody woke up that morning uh, expecting these things would happen to them necessarily. And it's in the midst of that that somebody just rises up and does something heroic. And they go running to the rescue of other people, putting themselves at great risk or what have you. And the trials, it's in, as it says, uh, the day of adversity that a person's strength is actually revealed. And so it says if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Thinking as a, a, an old school teacher, anyone can sit at home with their textbook open and answer all of the questions. But it's when the day of testing comes. It's the, the real proof of whether or not someone knows the material is when they sit down with the test and to begin to answer those questions. Or they have that project that they got to put all that they apparently learned and they put it into practice there. The testing reveals who you really are. And so the Lord uses adversity. He reveals things about ourselves. Sometimes one of the best parts of adversity is what it reveals to us, the person going through the adversity. And so in the midst of that adversity, I could say, man, I thought I was doing great, but my flesh really came out in that instance. Or we can give praise to the Lord. Wow, Lord, you're really changing me. Let's keep doing that, Lord. I got a lot that needs to be changed in there. Trials don't make or break a person. They're simply a gauge to show us where we are at. It's the trials that reveal what's going on uh, on the inside here. Now, I think you can, so that's good for myself. I want to know what's going on on the inside uh, because I can even deceive myself. But here's another reason why I think that's pretty awesome. It's very helpful when you're trying to gauge where somebody else is at as well. And here's the example that came to mind. Let's say that you are beginning a new relationship. You're going to start dating somebody or, or something like that, and you're about to begin this new relationship. You're considering this person as a mate. Here's my advice to you. Watch how they respond to adversity. Because anybody can put their best foot forward, particularly in the courting stage. But watch how they respond and deal with adversity because adversity will reveal who they really are. So if you're going out to that fancy meal and he's all dressed up and boy, he looks handsome or whatever. I'm thinking back to my younger days with my bride. All right, but boy, he look how handsome he looks. He's all dressed up and so on and so forth. And he's opening the door for you and handing you flowers and all those things. Well, what you really want to watch is how he responds when the car gets a flat and it pulls over on the side. And if he's slamming the doors and banging the hood and kicking the tire that doesn't work, seriously, look at that. Because when all the flowers and the cording and the suit jacket, well, all that's put aside, he's just revealed who he really is. And you want to just take a little bit of a step back. I'm not saying give up the relationship, but you want to pull back and say, I was thinking about premarital counseling together. You know, what do you think about that? Did you see my point? So adversity reveals who a person really is. Observe those circumstances. Verse 11, it says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we didn't know this. Does not he, capital H, who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay according to his work? 
Now, it seems that Solomon is referring here to the ancient practice of a person being led out to their own execution. And so the ancient practice was that a person, maybe the decision would take place on this side of town, and then they would be led out at the front of a procession or in, as part of a procession to the place where the execution was going to take place. Now what would happen is a crier would go out in front of that procession. And they would say the following guy is guilty for the following crime. If anyone has information about this case, speak now or forever hold your peace or whatever it may be. And so it seems that that's what Solomon is getting to because notice he says, rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to their slaughter. So if you're standing on the side and you know the situation and you know that guy didn't do it, I saw who did it. You have an obligation then to speak up in that particular circumstance. Now you say, well, hey, look, I I don't know what's going on. That's what it says there, verse 12. I, I didn't know what was going on or uh, that statement, then notice the Lord says, oh, no, but you did know. Don't forget, I perceive the heart. I know what you're thinking. I know what goes on inside of your mind. And you can tell everybody else that you had no idea what was going on, and an innocent man went to his death, but I really know what's going on, and I'm holding you accountable. That's, That's hard, heavy words, isn't it? Certainly so. So the person that says, hey, look, it's not my problem, The Lord says, no, it is your problem. Solomon says, no, it is your problem. And the Lord will hold you accountable for that in that particular instance. When an innocent man or woman is being led off to their death, it's inexcusable to stand by and not seek to rescue that individual. It's inexcusable. Wouldn't you agree? And I would even act, I would add, I should say, even if the person were guilty, they did it. But you knew there was a means for that person to not have to be executed. So let's say there's some obscure law that says, all right, instead of execution, they could go to exile. And you knew that, but nobody else knew that. Even then, the person's guilty. Even then, you have an obligation to speak up into that circumstance and preserve that particular person's life. Now, there's a parallel here that I want to draw your attention to. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 33. Would you please turn there? Ezekiel's to your right. You'll see books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. If you hit Daniel, you've gone too far. All right, so Ezekiel there is to your right from the book of Proverbs. We're all going to turn there. Come on, everybody. Turn there in your Bibles. And now we're getting hot. If somebody could turn the arrow on a little better here. Greg's getting hot. All right, Greg doesn't like getting hot. So somebody just, Kevin, you're a little twisty, twisty. Right above you there. Yep. And uh, Michelle, a little twisty, twisty. Somebody, thank you. Ooh, I'm dying up here. Okay, I see a lot of you didn't turn. Bring your Bibles, friends. All right. Chapter 33, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming, Upon the land, and he blows the trumpet, and he warns the people. Then, if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, well, then that person's blood will be upon their own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, 
he would have saved his life. But if the watchman, verse 6, sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. You see the parallel and the connection? It's inexcusable to not provide information that would get the innocent off from his execution. He says, I will require the blood at the watchman's hand. Verse 7, so you, son of man, I've made you, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Heavy message, isn't it? I'm sure you've made the connection. The warning that each of us are called to give are to those that are lost and dying in their sin. And you and I, we have the words of eternal life. And for us not to share those words of eternal life with others means we're guilty in so many ways, of the blood of those individuals. That's just what it says. I wish I could water it down some way. I wish I said, well, we're all going to be forgiven. We can't. It says we will be held responsible when there was an opportunity to present a way of release. That's why I use that example of the person is guilty, even if they're guilty, but maybe we could find some way to put them into exile. We know the way of escape. We know the way of release. And we are obligated to share it. And often, what do we do? This is what I do. I don't really like sharing my faith with people. I don't like people, oftentimes. I, quite frankly, you know, Monday through Friday or whatever, say, everybody stay out of my way. I got places to be. I got work to do. I got to care for people. But I don't want to be involved with people and talk to people. You know what I'm saying? And so I don't, if I'm going to get into some long conversation, that's just going to really eat into my day or whatever it may be. And so what do I do? I rationalize, well, Thank goodness we have gifted evangelists at our church. We got Kevin Tallickson. We got Eric Lydic. You know, we got those folks. We got those guys. They'll do the work, and I'll pat them on the back and encourage them so they can do the evangelism. Do you do that? Nobody does that? Come on. I know I'm not the only one here. And so we, we, we tend to do that. We leave it to other people. When we ourselves, we have an obligation, every one of us that is saved here, We've been forgiven of our sin, and we know how everybody, everybody can be forgiven of their sins. And yet we don't tell so many people. I want to encourage each one of us in this, and believe me, I'm speaking to myself as well. We have an obligation to share our faith with other people. And so as the Lord opens those doors, as we pray that he opens those doors, we step out of ourselves, we step out of our uncomfortability. I'm not sure that's the right word, but we step out of that. And we ask the Lord this prayer. Here's a prayer for you. You're going to be praying for electrical permits this week. uh, And you're going to pray, if you want, this particular prayer as well. Lord, make me more uncomfortable not to share my faith than I am to share my faith. And I believe as the Lord, as we pray that prayer in sincerity, the Lord will just open door after door after door for us to communicate the life-saving words of the gospel. Amen, friends? 
I'm, believe me, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. Verse 13 goes on. He says, my son, eat honey, for it is good. <laughs> there you go. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Now, I've had honey mixed into, like, uh, tea. I've never eaten, like, a spoonful of honey. Uh, do people do that? You guys do that? All right. I've eaten a handful of M&Ms, but, but not a spoonful of honey or whatever. So this doesn't really appeal to me necessarily. But really what Solomon is doing is he's, he's coming up with the sweetest, most delectable thing that he can. Now, for some of you, it looks like some of you are like, yeah, it's awesome, honey. Then stay with the honey. But for the rest of us, it's like chocolate cake or something. Think of the most sweetest, delectable thing that you can. And Solomon has eaten that particular thing. His son has not. And he's saying, and you've done this, you've said this before about a dessert or something. Trust me, you're going to love it. That's what Solomon is saying regarding honey. Trust me, you're going to love it. Now, this is more than just, you know, here's a good dessert for you to eat when you go to a restaurant. He transitions and he makes his point and he says, wisdom is like honey for your soul. So if you've never had that awesome, amazing dessert before, well, then someone might tell you about it, and your response might be, huh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll get that the next time I go. They, they've talked it up. Maybe I will. Then they leave. You may, you may not get it. You might go back to Old Faithful vanilla ice cream in a bowl or whatever. You might try it. You might not try it. You're not really sure. However, if the opportunity does present itself, and now that delicious, delectable retreat uh, treat is there right in front of you, and you do have it, and you discover, oh my goodness, this is as awesome as my friend said it was. This is as amazing as my friend said it was. Now what happens to you? Now you become an evangelist of that dessert too. And you run around and you go tell everyone you got to try it. It's amazing. It's, I didn't think it was going to be, but it is. And you can't help but tell others. And nobody now can convince you otherwise. Nobody can say to you, well, honey's not that good. What are you talking about? I've had the honey. It's fantastic, as our president might say uh, about that particular thing there. And Solomon's message then is this. Taste and see that wisdom is just as good. Notice the verse says, my son, eat honey for it's good. Verse 14, know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Those that have tasted honey need no further proof of how good it is. Even so, those that have experienced the fruit of the way of wisdom. Peace is the fruit of the way of wisdom. Patience, satisfaction, trust, confidence. All of, and you can come up with a whole bunch of other things. All of those things are the fruit of living a life of the way of wisdom. Once you've experienced those things, you're never going to want to go back to the other things. Amen? And nobody can convince you otherwise that it is not true. Honey is awesome. And so is the way of wisdom. Right? So Solomon says, you got to trust me. you got to try the wisdom. That's what he says there. Going on, verse 15. Lie not in wait as a wicked man uh, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Takeaway is this, not to take advantage of someone when they're down. Not to take advantage of someone when they're down is the takeaway there. And he uses the word in verse 16, falls, which isn't meant to imply sin. 
It's a word not really used to describe sin. So sometimes we might say, I fell into sin, or I fell and I sinned, or something like that. This word is never really used in conjunction with the idea of sin. It's really just a word which means adversity, difficulty, and trouble. And adversity, difficulty, and trouble, those are the things that come our way this side of heaven, right? You can be living your life on fire for the Lord. You're still going to have to deal with adversity, with difficulty, and with trouble. And so Solomon presents it here, it here for us and say, look, don't take advantage of a person when they're dealing with adversity and difficulty and trouble. The wicked does. You see that there in the verse. Verse 15, it says, the wicked lies in wait for their opportunity to arise. And Solomon's exhortation then is don't be like the wicked. That's the first exhortation of the verse. Don't do it. Now, the second exhortation is found in the second portion of the verse. And essentially, it says, be like the righteous. Don't be like the wicked. Don't lie in wait for the calamity of others, but rather be like the righteous and get back up even after you have fallen. Because as I said, this side of heaven, we will have struggles and we will have difficulties and various forms of trials. Some of those we bring on ourselves with the decisions that we make. Some of them just happen because we're not in heaven. We're here on the earth. And sometimes trials and difficulties are the result of sin in our lives here. But his important exhortation to us is this, keep getting back up. Because we run the walk of Christ, the race of Christ, we run a marathon. It's not a quick sprint that you get done. We run a marathon. And sometimes there's a stumbling that goes on. Sometimes other people seem to be running faster than we are. But in this particular race, the prize is awarded not just to the one who wins the race. Everyone who finishes wins the race. So you're crawling along slowly, you're stumbling and you're down on the ground a little bit and everyone's passed you by, get up. That's Solomon's exhortation to us. Just get up and keep on running. It says in the New Testament, this idea of run in such a way as to complete the course. If you fall, get back up. If you fall again, get back up again. It's okay. You're a sinner. Get back up again and start running again. The point is just keep moving forward. I know some of us, this has been a tough, tough couple of months or year, or for some of us, a tough bunch of years that have been stringed together there. Let me just say this. Praise the Lord, you're here. And so you've been stumbling along and dealing with some things, but you're here. And maybe you've been thinking about throwing in the towel. Remember that old expression? The boxing match or the wrestling match, you throw in the towel, we give up. And you've been thinking about giving up. Don't give up. Just don't. Just keep on running your race. You've come so far already. And as it says in the New Testament, Romans 13 says, your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Just keep running toward that salvation and stand up and put one foot in front of the other. And then I would close with this little exhortation. We didn't get as far as I hope, but I'll close with this. In, if in the process of running your race, you see a brother or a sister that has stumbled that's a fantastic opportunity for you to go over next to that brother or sister and to take their arm and sling it up around the back of your shoulder and help them along in their race until they can get back up on their feet again and run their race. And I guarantee you the time is going to come when you're going to need somebody to come and do that for you as well. And that's what we do. That's the body of Christ, isn't it? We run this race together so that we can get to our destination. 
Oh boy. Praise the Lord. We'll buy you a new one. We'll buy you a new one. In this world, you're going to have adversity. You're going to have trial. Somebody put their arm around that brother who's iPad. Amen, good friends. That's why we're a church. That's why we call this our home together is so we can run this race together and come to the end of our days. Amen, good friends. We'll stop there. We'll pick up uh, next time we're together. Father, we are uh, so appreciative of your wisdom. Lord, how you've designed, not for us to be sort of these Lone Ranger Christians, um, but rather for us to be uh, intricately plugged in to one another. Lord, to share life together with one another. The good times of life and the struggles of life. And, and Lord, sitting here this morning, uh, we just rejoice that each one of us are here that we might hear from you, that we might be encouraged by your word. And, and Lord, I pray for those that have been really thinking about, you know what, I'm just, I'm just done. I'm tired. I want to throw in the towel. I don't care anymore. Lord, I pray that you would use this word as a, as a voice of refreshment to their soul and to their hearts. And, and Lord, even as a challenge to those of us that perhaps things are going pretty well right now, to look beside ourselves and to offer care to those who might need it. Father, we do pray for a heart for the lost. And Lord, if we need to be uh, convicted about that and beat up about that a little bit, Lord, we, we believe that those wounds would be the wounds that we receive from a friend who wants good for us. And, and Lord, your Holy Spirit has to sometimes speak challenging words. Lord, we do ask for a heart for the lost. And we pray for an attitude of heart that would be more uncomfortable not sharing than sharing. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, stir up our hearts in such a way. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time to gather. Thank you for the blessing of fellowship that we can enjoy. Continue to minister to us and through us to one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.